If you have the King James Bible and you were reading along in the scripture, you might have wondered about that little phrase that said, he became us. That is a use of the word became similar to what we say when we say that that dress is very becoming. When we say the dress is becoming, we mean that it really fits the lady. And when that verse says that such a savior became us, it means that Jesus exactly fits us. Today, we're talking about what is Jesus doing? It's not the same question as what has he done or what is he going to do, but the question is what is he doing? And I hope that right here in our scripture, are you still there in Hebrews 7? That you see what he's living for. Do you see that in verse 25? Wherefore he is able to save them, let's just change them to us. For this reason, he is able to save us to the uttermost, those that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. I'm going to read it, us. What is Jesus doing? That's what he's living for. If you want to know why was he resurrected, well, the answer is right there in Hebrews 7. He's living to make intercession for us. Does it look in this verse like his intercession is significant to our salvation? Why? It says it's because of this intercession that he's able to save us to the uttermost. That is completely. Or let me say this another way. Saving me is complicated. It's not so easy as it is to make me confess that Jesus is my Savior. It's saving me is more difficult than it is to lead me to baptism. It's more difficult to save me than it is to get me to conform to some standards that I might learn in the Bible. Saving me is hard because we are born with great weaknesses. Our tendencies and our inheritance and even the bad habits that we formed are strong. And fighting them is difficult. So is there hope for us? There's hope because of the work of Jesus who intercedes for us. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're talking about what Jesus is doing. And I want to introduce this idea now in the context of things that you see or hear about. There are just plenty of tragedies and difficulties and problems in the world today. I live in Arkansas, and our gardening here in Arkansas is delayed about four weeks over average because of the cold spring we've had. But you know it's been okay in Arkansas. North of Arkansas, it's been very, very cold. Are you all aware that it's been just a hard time? That's a small thing compared to some of the issues going on in Syria or issues going on in Thailand that we hear about from our friends, the Thunbergs. There is a lot of trouble. And one question we might ask is, what is Jesus doing about the trouble that's in the world today? I mean, it's one thing to ask, what is he doing? But it's something more to ask, what is he doing about the trouble? If you see someone whose house is burning down, and you see him outside digging a hole 
it's one question is, what is he doing? But another question is, what is he doing about the fact that his house is burning down? In other words, it's not enough to know that he's doing something. You really want to see that he has some concern about what's going on. Do you follow what I'm trying to illustrate? I think you do. John chapter 15, we're looking at verse 14. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. I like the verse for its simplicity because I would like to be a friend of Jesus. When I read those horrible verses in the Bible, when I say horrible, I don't mean that they shouldn't be there. I mean that they have news that's really bad for someone. When I read those horrible verses that talk about Jesus saying to people, I never knew you, it makes me think I want to be his friend. I don't ever want to hear him say, I never knew you. And who does he say, who are his friends in John 15, 14? It's those that do what he says. That's exactly it. Now look at verse 15. From this time on, I call you not servants. This is interesting what Jesus says, because I call myself a servant of Jesus. And I think you are servants of Jesus. And in fact, the Bible has many verses that refer to God's people as his servants. I don't think Jesus means here that we don't serve him anymore. I think he's talking about being servants plus. In other words, not going from being servants to not servants, but going from being servants to something more than servants. And let's read on what he says. From now on, I call you not servants, for the servant doesn't know what his Lord is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. My friends are the ones that understand what's important to me and are interested in what I'm interested in. My friends are the ones that can kind of join me. I guess another word for male friendship is camaraderie. I don't even know if ladies can relate to that. I've never been a lady. But, but camaraderie is the idea of working with someone. And Jesus sounds very much like the way a guy thinks here. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. But the next verse says that the friend is the one who knows what his master is doing. Do you see in verse 15 that he's still our master? That we're not going from a servant-master relationship to a peer-peer, friend-friend relationship? We're going from a servant-master relationship to a friend-servant-master relationship, but he's still our master in the verse. He says, I have called you friends because I've made known to you what I'm doing. We want to talk today about what Jesus is doing. This picture on the board is an illustration of the idea of Jesus being our priest. The picture there, though, isn't an illustration of Jesus. That picture is an illustration of the earthly high priest. And when you see that picture, if you know what the Bible teaches, for those who listen to this sermon and don't see the picture, 
we're looking at a picture of the most holy place where you can see the holy place also and a little bit of the courtyard around the edge. We're looking at a picture that shows a picture of the high priest and there's only one day of the year that that picture could be taken if it was a photograph. What day would that be? That would be the Day of Atonement. It'd be the only day. Why do I say the only day? Because that's the only day when Jesus would be in that room or the high priest in the symbols would be in that room. When you study what the Bible teaches about what Jesus does, you find what you might call three phases of the work of Jesus in saving us. And all of them are to some small degree illustrated in that picture. I say small degree because you can barely see the courtyard there. But let me draw a picture with my finger and describe it with my words. If the sanctuary was right here in midair, a big rectangle, that big rectangle would be a linen curtain right around the outside of this big rectangle. You could almost imagine it like, like if you see it from a distance, it looks like a linen building. But when you get up close to it, you see that what looks like a wall is really just a large curtain. And inside that wall is a lot of open space, but in the middle is a building. That building has two apartments, a holy place and a most holy place. I'm trying to have a, I'm trying to draw up my hand like you're looking at it, which is kind of backwards from my head, if you can imagine what's going on here. So I'm putting the most holy place over here. In that courtyard that you're looking at and the sanctuary, you have the area outside the tent, and that represents what Jesus did when he was alive on earth. That is, when he was alive on earth, that is when Jesus ended up dying for our sins the very way that the lamb dies in that, on that altar of sacrifice. But Jesus was resurrected. And do you remember from Hebrews 7 why he was resurrected? Why it said that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And that's what he does inside that building. Now, I don't know if you know this. Probably half of you do. But the books of Revelation and Daniel have more to say about the heavenly sanctuary than other books in the Bible. Hebrews is the other book that has a lot to say about the heavenly sanctuary. But really, Revelation, which is a book for the end of time, has a lot to say about Revelation. It has many pictures of, did I say Revelation is a lot about Revelation? Well, what I meant was, Revelation has a lot to say about the heavenly sanctuary. It has many pictures of the sanctuary because Jesus wants us to understand what he's doing. I don't really plan this morning in our brief time of having a study more about what Jesus does in the courtyard as our sacrifice. Not even am I going to spend a lot of time talking about what Jesus was doing when he first became a priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Because what Jesus was doing when he first became a priest, he's still doing it. I mean, when Jesus first went into the sanctuary, when he went into the heavenly temple... Can you see to the right of the red curtain a little altar with some incense coming up? 
that altar of incense represented in the Old Testament the idea of Jesus making our prayers useful. It takes a miracle for my prayer to be useful. I hope you can understand so easily that if I come to God without the help of Jesus and I ask him for something, that that is extremely arrogant, it's disrespectful. The Bible even calls it an abomination. As if someone whose heart is corrupt could make a request of the pure and holy God. I can't pray to God, but Jesus is holy. Do you remember reading in Hebrews 7 for our scripture reading that he's holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled? Jesus can approach God and he can combine my request with his righteousness. It's almost as if he can approach the Father and say, Father, I want that you will give Eugene the very thing he asked for. Now, if Jesus asked for that, it really doesn't matter whether I deserve it or not. Because Jesus deserves it. And if the Father asks, if Jesus asked the Father for something for me, the Father is going to give it to me for the sake of Jesus. That's what Jesus has been doing. That's what he's still doing. Mar Angels marvel that we pray so little. It just doesn't seem sensible to them that when we have Jesus doing this work, that we pray as little as we do. I thank God for the canvassing work. But let me tell you why. I don't know if you really need the canvassing work to learn what it taught me, but I thank God that I had it because it's how I learned it. It was in canvassing I learned how to pray without ceasing. That is where I learned the idea that I don't need to have a big emergency to pray. That if I'm about to talk to someone on the phone, I probably need wisdom from heaven. And if I am going to choose what to eat for supper or whether to eat supper, I could use wisdom from heaven. And if the question is at Walmart, should I buy it or not, I could just decide myself, but life goes better if I have wisdom from heaven so that it becomes really helpful for me to always be darting up prayers to God for wisdom. I don't find in my experience that what God gives me instead of, I don't find that in place of wisdom that God gives me revelations. Revelations are not the same as wisdom. Revelation is on the outside of me and tells me what to do, but wisdom's on the inside of me. And what God has promised is to give wisdom if we will ask him. So is it sensible to ask him often? It's sensible often to ask him, should I do that? How long should I do that? How far should I go? I don't just have to ask him before I start, but I can ask him while I'm involved. If I'm talking to you for any extended period, I mean for a half hour or 40 minutes, chances are I'm going to pray while I'm talking to you. Probably I'm going to pray while you're talking because I have a difficulty. I can't make the highest quality prayers while I'm blabbing at the same time. I just find it difficult. But I can, even while I'm talking, ask God for help. It's not with words. It's more like a conscious dependence. What I'm really trying to say, I'm not trying to teach you about prayer. 
so much as to tell you that what Jesus did when he went to heaven is he began to help us with our prayers. That's not all he did. The book of Hebrews shows some things that we won't look at, but it shows that Jesus is comforting us and that he, as a priest, knows how to comfort us because he knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus knows how to encourage us because he has already been victorious over the same things that threaten to make me fall. What Jesus has been doing since the cross is working to encourage me to hold on and to comfort me when I fall, to raise me up and to make my prayers effective. I guess you could say it's like he's my personal coach and helper in the business of getting to heaven. But Jesus, when he became us, that is, when he became just right for us, he did become a human. And we find evidence in the Bible that the scars are still in his hand, which indicates that he still is in a human body. So how does Jesus help me right here if, in fact, he is way up in heaven in the heavenly sanctuary? Jesus could have just asked us to trust him, but he's not treating us so much like servants. He wants, to, wants us to be friends, so he's made known to us what he does. And this is what he said. He says he's sending us his Holy Spirit. In other words, even though he's there, he's aware of what we need, and he sends the Spirit to comfort us, to help us, even to give us gifts when, we need to, when we're doing his service. He sends us help to help us understand the Bible. Otherwise, we would misunderstand it. Well, it does happen that we do misunderstand it. And then he sends us the Spirit to help clear up those misconceptions that we bring on ourselves by our reading. So in the first phase of Christ's work, he's a prophet. I don't mean that he's not the divine son of God, but I mean that he's a mouthpiece for God. And what he did is he gave his life a ransom and he showed us how to live. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what it says in Matthew 20. Jesus came to show us how to live and then to die in our place. Then he went to heaven and that is where he's been working to make our prayers effective and to help us get to heaven. Those are the first two phases. But there is a third phase relevant to the question, what is Jesus doing about the trouble in our world? And that third phase is what Jesus does when he gets into that third apartment. Now I want to say a little bit about that third apartment. I'll say that this sermon is a big picture, but you could spend a lot of time on any one of these phases of Christ's ministry, and it would be useful for you. In fact, in the very last few verses of the Old Testament, I think we have time to look at that. Why don't you turn there to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, that's just before Matthew chapter 1. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4. In your own time, you can read the context and see that this whole chapter is about Christ's second coming. It's about the 
what happens at that coming and what happens just before that coming. But look at verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. It doesn't say obey the law of Moses, but it does say something about the law of Moses. What does it say about the law of Moses? It says remember, which implies that you probably ought to comprehend because to remember something you don't comprehend has never been highly useful. One of the last things Jesus said in the Old Testament to us is that we ought to understand the symbols of the sanctuary service, that we ought to study them and comprehend them. That's true. And when we come to this last part of what Jesus is doing, it is worthy of more study than we possibly could give to it this morning. But what is Jesus doing now in the last portion? Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 is part of that law of Moses that we've been asked to remember that describes what what the high priest did one day out of the year. Hebrews 16 and verse 29. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. That doesn't mean July 10. This was the Jewish year, so that would be somewhere in September or October, depending on when the barley harvest became ripe. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. This verse says that on that one day when the high priest is in there, outside where all the other people are, that was a day when they weren't working. In some ways, it was kind of like a Sabbath. And what if you were just a Canaanite who was traveling through Israel on that day? Could you do your work? You know, nobody could. It was the, everyone that was around had to stop. But they weren't, they didn't just stop working. They were doing something. Do you see what they did in the verse? In the King James, it says they afflicted their soul. That is, that they were mourning Mourning as in they were repenting or being sad about the sins that they had committed during the year, how many times they had let God down. Heidi and I last Monday were being trained for foster care. And as part of the training, they showed us a, uh, a video. I'm confident that the video was just an actor. But he sure did a persuasive job of one little part he did. He was acting out being a foster child who had gone from home to home to home six or seven times. And there, as he's talking to the camera, he says that people talk a lot about care and caring and caring for everyone, but what he's learned is that everyone lets you down. 
on the Day of Atonement, that was a day for you to realize how you have let people down. A day for you to think how you could have been or what you should have done or how you should be. It was a day for considering that, not just for the purpose of making yourself miserable. Look at verse 30. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to do what? To cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. In other words, this process of what I'm doing here on earth, afflicting my soul, is related to what Jesus is doing in heaven. What he's doing in heaven is he's cleaning up the church. If you've ever been to a marriage that was biblical, you probably heard someone reading from Ephesians 5. And they talked about how Jesus is going to present his bride to himself as a pure and chaste virgin. I'm combining Ephesians 5 now with Revelation. Excuse me for putting them together. But you understand the idea that Jesus is cleaning up his church. He's purifying his church. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And what are we to be doing? Yeah, we're to be afflicting our souls. Now, I left out some important ideas. I'm going to go back and catch them now. When we talk about what is Jesus doing, it's not just biblical trivia. Jesus requires that we cooperate with him. So when he was here on earth and was preaching the gospel, it was required that people believe him. That they accept him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And if they would not believe him, it wasn't just take it or leave it. It was a real disaster for them. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn you, but the words that I say, they will condemn you. In other words, the light condemns those who don't accept it. The way you cooperate with Jesus when he's on earth is you accept the truth he has to say and you accept the fact that he's the lamb. Well, then when he went to be a priest, he still required cooperation. If he's there to make our prayers effective and to send us the Spirit, he requires that we pray and that we ask for the Spirit. He requires that we have prayers of confession and repentance and that that we on earth are cooperating with what he's doing. In other words, it's never been so that God just saves people despite themselves. If he saves you despite anything, I need to say that sentence over because it could be understood in a way that's wrong. Jesus doesn't save people without their cooperation. If he did, he'd be saving people that weren't his friends. But his friends are the ones that understand what he's doing. What about this third phase? What does he require of us? We've read verse 29 and 30, but look at verse 31. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you. You shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. Now understand it and don't understand it wrongly. You could find in the same chapter where it says kill a lamb. But that doesn't mean that we're supposed to kill a lamb today. The killing of the lamb was a symbol of something that would really happen, and that is that Jesus would really die. And I don't want you to get the idea right here that we really need to put on sackcloth and ashes and go around with a sad face. That's not what we need to do. 
This was the symbol, but the reality is described elsewhere. Turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. I'm looking at verse 5. Is this the fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul and to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Does God want us to cooperate? Indeed, he does. Jesus is cleaning up his church. He wants us to cooperate, but we don't cooperate well with him by looking miserable and sad. That was the symbol, but what is the reality? Look at verse 6. Is, it, is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. What God is looking for is that I will deal with the sins in my life, but he's not asking that I will become uh, self-centered in my religion. The truth is, if I put all my focus on overcoming my own weaknesses, I can discourage myself right into oblivion. So he's given me something to do to help keep my courage up and my spirit soft. He's asked me also to help others with their difficulties, with their burdens, with their struggles. What God is asking is that we search our hearts, but that we help others who are also searching their hearts and who are struggling. That is how we work with what he's doing. So we've looked at what we're to be doing in the symbols. Now we've looked at what we're to be doing in prophecy. There are other prophecies that would show it. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and look at what we ought to be doing as illustrated by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5 and looking at verse 7. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. What did Jesus do? Did he pray? He prayed earnestly. He prayed earnestly with, well, you can see how earnestly he prayed. He prayed to him that was able to save him from death. Now, do I need to be saved from death? I need to be saved from death. And it makes sense that I would pray the way Jesus prayed. And he was heard in that he feared. Why were the prayers of Jesus answered? It was because he lived in a way that showed his reverence for God. Listen to verse 8. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect or complete, 
he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. We've seen in the symbols that our part is to search our hearts, to afflict our hearts. We've seen in the prophecy that what we're trying to do is overcome the sin in our lives and help others with their weaknesses. What we see in the life of Jesus is that this work of agonizing with God leads to character development. And even Jesus, who never sinned, had a development of character. Maybe you would ask, how could Jesus have development of character? It's like this. It's the same way that a pea plant can develop without ever having a problem. That is, Jesus could be born having an inheritance of weaknesses that made it difficult to do right, but every time he would choose to do right, it would become easier. And by doing right and by suffering temptation and overcoming temptation, it became easier and easier and easier, except for the devil was allowed to just apply pressure harder and harder and harder. Do you realize the devil is limited in how hard he can put pressure on us? He's only allowed to put on as much pressure as we can handle. But the effect of that is that we can feel like we're really under the gun for a very long time in a row. It might feel like we're making no progress at all, when in fact we are growing by leaps and bounds. Jesus grew by victory until he became complete, and that's when he became the author of eternal salvation to those was it say, those that obey him, it says in verse 9. So this broad sermon is supported by many texts that we're not going over. I made three copies of it that I'll put out there in the uh, lobby area for those who want to see those, some of those other texts. But I want to close with one last passage that's here in Hebrews 11. Excuse me, in Hebrews. Turn to chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're talking about what we do to cooperate with God. And I want you to understand that here on this earth, if the question is, what is Jesus doing about the sin and the disasters on this planet? You should know that there are a couple things he's doing. One thing he's doing is he's preparing for us a city that has foundations. That is, he's preparing a place to take us that is not like this disastrous planet. And while we're still on it, he's allowing the things we suffer here to be a benefit to us as they prepare us for the place he's preparing. But the second thing he's doing is he's allowing the suffering on this planet to be a foretaste of what is going to come in judgment on those who never will submit to him or who refuse to submit to him. The truth is that the suffering on this planet works a dual purpose. It is effective in the punishment of those who will reject him. And it is effective in the development of those that will accept him. I don't say that all service, or excuse me, all suffering fits into one of those two categories. There certainly is much senseless suffering of people on this planet. But God is doing something to bring it to an end. He's working to purify his church so that he can bring it to an end and making a better place so that he can bring it to an end. 
while we're here, we aren't to view this earth as our home. We can relate to what's going on by considering this a place of pilgrimage. A place of pilgrimage. That's a place you go for a while and then you leave. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. That is, those who describe themselves as strangers and pilgrims are saying that they're looking for something more permanent. Verse 15. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If the question is, what is Jesus doing? The answer is a number of things. He is preparing a city for us. A city so that we don't have to consider this painful world to be our home. He is answering our prayers and sending his spirit and comforting us and encouraging us because otherwise we would get discouraged and just give up and quit along the way. But some people are getting discouraged and giving up and quitting along the way. I think we might even know people who are getting discouraged and giving up and quitting along the way. And what he said in our day is that we're to cooperate with him by, as it were, holding up the hands that hang down, by lifting up those people, those feeble knees, give them some place to sit that's steady. I'm saying that we're to break the yokes and lift the heavy burdens. We're to undo the oppression that is going on. That's how we cooperate with what he's doing. Then what is he doing? He's working to purify his church. But don't think for a minute that these three works are unrelated because it's while we're serving others that he's best able to purify our hearts. It's while we're seeking to put away our sins that he's best able to show us what needs to be done. It's while we consider this world to be a place of pilgrimage and not our home that he's best able to change the way we think and the way we make our priorities. The work that he's doing fits with us Such a high priest has became us, that is, he fits us perfectly. And because he ever lives, he can save us to the uttermost. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.